0: In the midst of this uh, sermon series, as we look at these I Am Statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, I think John is recording these so that we might know God. Uh, And the way to know God is to see Jesus Christ. That's how God is made known. God made flesh. And these stories of Jesus that are recorded by John are not just so we can develop a tight theological understanding of Jesus, but to know the one true Savior who is God and who is our friend. Lord, we do pray that you would uh, teach us through your Word, help us understand more who you are, help us trust in you, for you are the resurrection and the life. In your Son's name, Amen. So last uh, week in this sanctuary, as a matter of fact, right here, I uh, got to celebrate a wedding, uh, and it was for Corey and Ivana who got married. And months before, Corey had asked Ivana to marry him, and she had said yes. That was a good thing. They love each other. It was a great celebration. Lots of family and friends gathered here. But I kind of imagine sometimes, what if, what if uh, Ivana had said something different to Corey when he asked her to marry him? But if she said something like, you know, Corey, you have just declared your love for me and you've asked me to be your wife and I just have to tell you, it is so true that you love me. <laughs> and I believe that you do love me and that you want to marry me and I, and I, and I want to thank you for asking me and I really, really believe it. <laughs> and that was her answer. So obviously, this is not the appropriate answer when someone asks you to marry them. It's either it, it, yes is the response, right? There's a commitment involved. And, and I think that John's uh, recording of these I am statements of, of who Jesus is, and Jesus' claims as to who he is as God, is that we might be able to understand Jesus as a person who we say yes to. Uh, not just theological concepts about who Jesus is. And so that we would know him as our savior, as our, as our friend, as our shepherd, as our gate, as the light, as the bread, all these different statements. So our text today is the story of Jesus and the family of Lazarus. And as we look at the story, I'm particularly grateful for the reflections of Dr. Craig Barnes, who I've drawn on from in my sermon today as well. Um, we, we don't think of Jesus as the kind of person sometimes who has friends. We, you know, there were the disciples, right? There were the people who came for Jesus' teaching. He had the crowds with him for a time. And so we tend to assume that Jesus was too busy being the Messiah to have friends. But according to the Gospel of John, Jesus did have close friends. And among them was Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother. We know that Jesus stayed in their home when he was in Bethany and we know he had dinner with them. And in verse five of today's text, uh, it says that Jesus loved this family. He loved them, they were his friends. But Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are not Jesus' only friends. You go on in the Gospel of John and in chapter 15, Jesus is recorded as saying um, to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, you are now my friends. And in many ways, he's referring to anyone who is a follower of Jesus. And he's referring to you, he's referring to me. Uh, we are a friend of Jesus, each of us. But what does exactly it mean to be a friend of Jesus? Does it mean that we get special treatment from Jesus uh, because we, after all, are his friends? Does it mean that we, when we get in trouble that Jesus will hurry up and help us because that's what friends do? Well, not according to this passage. (laughs) One day, Jesus was away from Bethany, this town that his friends were in, and his close friend Lazarus became sick. And so the sisters sent him a message saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then we're told this next thing in the text. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Mary and Martha and his brother Lazarus, he and when he heard this news that he was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. And that's not what you expect, right? We would expect the text to say something like that since Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he hurried back to heal Lazarus. But that's not what it says. Jesus never seems to hurry. I mean, nowhere in the gospels do we ever find Jesus running he doesn't seem to have this big ability to hustle places. <laughs> I mean, that, this can be frustrating. It certainly frustrates me, who moves at a, at a fast pace sometimes, a harried life, right? A harried life for Jesus. And sometimes I expect that he might just move as fast, you know? But Jesus does not want to be dragged around by our agendas because he wants to be our friend. He wants to be our friend. He loves us too much to be a means to an end. So Jesus stays two more days, and Lazarus dies. So you can imagine what must have been going through the minds of Mary and Martha. And they thought, he'd healed so many people he didn't even know. Surely he would hurry back to Lazarus' bedside and heal the one that he loved. But he didn't rush back, and Lazarus dies. You can imagine the grief of these two. And of course we can. Sooner or later, we've all been where they are and we will be there again. Life becomes overwhelming. We have done all that we can do. We need the miracle that only the Savior can bring. And so we pray. We pray for a relationship that is absolutely unraveling. or We pray for the dreams that we have that are about to be crushed. Or we pray for someone we cherish so much who is so sick. And we pray, Lord, he or she whom you love is ill. Lord, come. But in spite of the depth of the fervency of our prayers, what we're most afraid of happening happens. And what we want to come in the nick of time is Jesus, but so often that is just not the case. It can be discouraging, it can be disappointing, it can be devastating. But if you want Jesus to come to you, you are not actually asking for just a little bit of help. Whether we know it or not, we're asking for a new life. Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus are not the typical people we find in the gospel narratives. These are Jesus' close friends. and He tells us that he loved his family. Um, I mean, Lazarus, uh, we don't know really much about. Either find him very ill or dead, or very surprised. (laughs) And Martha, we know all too well. Martha is this hardworking, task-oriented, type A person. And we discover in the next chapter uh, that sometimes this makes her miss the mystery of the moment, right? And then there's Mary. Mary's all heart. Uh, Not the practical one, not the one, but she is the one who can make you laugh or make you cry. And while Jesus was away from this family, the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to him, Lazarus, he whom you love is ill. And then Jesus stays two more days where he was. And now he's arriving at Bethany, this town where they live, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. So Jesus was late. Very late. And Lazarus died. So to some degree... Uh, Lazarus is the name of whatever it is we're counting on Jesus loving. And maybe our family, maybe the work we've given ourselves to, it may be someone close to us who's sick. It maybe it's a, a project we've devoted ourselves to, a project of justice that we're committed to. We don't expect necessarily Jesus to give us everything we ask for, but we do expect Jesus to make His own dreams come true and do the things that he loves, respond to the people he loves. And so when Lazarus dies, we have inherited this problem of faith. So when Martha hears that Jesus is coming down the road, she goes first to find him. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he says to her, Lazarus will rise from the dead. He gets it right out there. And she says, well, I, I know. I know he'll rise from the dead in the last days. And you think about how many times she's probably said this to herself, right, in the last four days. And I, I know he'll rise in the, again in the last days. I know he'll rise again in the last days. She's telling herself this. And I think when, when pastors are, are called to a hospital or to a hospice room where someone's dying and people are gathered all around, the very same thing is happening there. That, that's happening with Martha. People reciting this in their minds. I know it'll, it'll rise in the last days. And when, when you gather with people like that, they're not asking the pastor to be very creative theologically. They want the pastor to remind them what they believe, right? The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death; I will fear no evil. That's what they want to hear. That's what we want to hear. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So when Martha starts to say something similar to this out of her own tradition, Jesus interrupts her to say, I am the resurrection. Do you believe it? And what he's saying to her is, I am the one who is life. I am the one who has the power over death. I am the one who will call the dead to heaven. I'm the one who will deliver the dead to the next great chapter of their lives in eternity. I mean, I, I love how C.S. Lewis at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia describes heaven. He says it this way, all life in this world only, had only been the cover and the title page, and now at last begins chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's a great picture of heaven. Well, Jesus is the author of this new story, from death to life, and he does this. So he he interrupts Martha and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? We who have been for years uh, sitting in sermon after sermon on a Sunday, or we who can stand and recite the creeds from memory, we who have... Who also, we also have to be people who hear Jesus interrupt us sometimes and say, do you believe this? And what matters is not so much what we believe, but whom we believe. Because when you're in a crisis, when Lazarus is dead, what you believe is not going to help so much. What you believe may be up for question. Now, when, when you're in trouble, what you need is a who. You need the resurrection and the life. Jesus is not a what, he's a who. He is not a doctrine. He is not just the teacher of doctrine or ethics or spirituality. He is the resurrection and the life. That is who he is. So don't be surprised someday, uh, maybe in the middle of your work week or uh, in a worship service on a Sunday while you're facing a crisis, maybe with a sick friend, that the Holy Spirit interrupts you and says, do you believe in him? And when you can't understand what to believe, do you believe in him? Do you believe that this one who would not stay in his own tomb would find his way to yours? Do you believe? Well, Martha responds. She says, yes, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world. It is all that she knows at this point, And it's really all that she needs at this point. And then there's Mary. Mary gets to Jesus, and she does not work out her grief with theology. She works it out with her heart. She just falls at Jesus' feet and weeps. The tears flow, and Jesus becomes greatly disturbed and deeply moved. And then he begins to weep. Now, I find this image to be one of the most helpful ones in all the gospels. He doesn't maintain objectivity. He's not really concerned about professional composure. He enters into this grief how it is, and he gets overwhelmed, and he weeps, greatly disturbed, deeply moved. Can you imagine the power of what it means that Jesus, God incarnate, can become greatly disturbed and deeply moved and can enter into our tears. The psalmist says in Psalm 56, God counts, uh, God keeps count of our tossings and places our tears in a bottle. Not a single one of our tears is lost, is it? God sees the tears shed late at night. He knows all about the tears of the one who has hurts and is still hurting. God sees the tears of those fleeing conflict and persecution. He knows the tears of those praying for the sick and for the dying. God is deeply disturbed and greatly moved. And so what can that mean to have God deeply disturbed and deeply moved? That it's personified, really, in Christ Jesus. I mean, can our theology weep? No. Can our politics weep? No. Can our hard work and all that we've built up weep? No. Only a person can weep. And that person is the resurrection and the life. Who knows what can happen when the Savior is moved? And I think we do know our hope can rise from the dead. So the tomb of Lazarus is located in Bethany, this town that's about two miles from Jerusalem, down a valley and up another side of the valley. And many of you maybe have traveled to Israel, to Palestine, and um, have seen the site that tradition identifies as this tomb. I haven't seen it, but I understand it's this, this dark hole in the ground, this cave it goes deep into the earth. But, you know, whether you've seen it or not, I promise you that all of us will spend time in Lazarus' tomb. When we're disappointed in God, it's often because we are disappointed in how our own life is unfolding or the lives of those around us and how they're unfolding. So we choose sometimes to pack up life and settle into the tomb. We settle into the tomb also when we choose to live life without passion or risk or mission, or when brokenness in relationships or in health or in our work causes us to give up, or when we settle for a world where homelessness and mental illness wins, and mothers live in their cars with their children or when poverty defines the lives of so many and no path forward is imagined. When we settle for this, we say that it's just the way that it is. I can't do much about that. We give up our identity of being caretakers of God's good earth. We tell ourselves, I'm just gonna tend to my own garden now. What we are actually doing is walking into the tomb and rolling the stone over the door. I mean, Jesus doesn't settle. He certainly does not settle for the misery we know. So that time comes now when Jesus approaches the tomb and he commands the stone across the door to be rolled back. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. You have been dead long enough. It's time to get back to living. And then Martha says, Lord, he's been in there four days. It's gonna really stink. I think Martha's a Presbyterian. It's going to stink. I mean, maybe what she's saying is, Lord, this is just death. It stinks. But we all know about it. It's the way the story often ends, with loss. We had asked you to prevent this loss, Lord. We had called to you. You didn't come. And now we have experienced loss again. It's just death. It's what we all know. It stinks, but that's the way it is. And Jesus responds to her by saying, "Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see?" And that's really what belief is, what faith is. It's a way of seeing. But if we just believe what we see, then Martha's right. Eventually we're all just going to end up back at the tomb. No matter what it is, we will all just experience the loss of relationship, the loss of health, the loss of careers. All things will just end up being pulled out of our hands. And that's what we know. That's what we see. But we don't just believe in what we see, we choose to believe in who we see when that who is a Savior standing near the tomb. That's why we worship, in order to see that there is a Savior nearby. When God is with us, who knows what can happen? And that's what we know. Now, so it's striking to me that Jesus is standing outside this tomb inviting Lazarus to come forth. And it's not exactly what we want uh, when we're in a tomb. We would prefer for Jesus to kind of come into the tomb and to comfort us there. We want company when we're in the tomb. But I can tell you, that's not going to happen. Jesus doesn't like tombs, he did not spend much time in his own tomb and he's not going into yours. Instead he stands outside the tomb and he says, Lazarus, Kate, Charlie, Emma, Tim, come forth. Come out of the loss, come out of the fear, come out of your cynicism or your despair, come out of the hurt that you have made your friend. This is a dark place, why would you settle for living in here? The door's open, and the invitation is being made to you, but you have to respond. Now, will you come forth when there is new life waiting? So the text says this. The dead man came forth. His arms and his feet were bound with strips of cloth and the cloth across his face. And at that point, Jesus kind of looked around at the other people who were watching them, and he said to them, unbind him. Let him go. So if I'm reading this text right, there is only the Savior who can actually bring people back to life. But our job is to help unbind them and to free them. We are called to join Jesus as he reconciles all people, unbinding and freeing them. That's our part. But we cannot fulfill that calling if we ourselves are still in the tomb. So hear this good news. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He will call us all to heaven someday to live the great story where every day is better than the one before, but he will also call us today to come out of the tomb, to choose life, to come forth. He calls us to join him, unbinding and freeing those he loves. Lord, you are the one who is the resurrection and the life. You are the one who sheds tear in the face of the grief of death. You are the one who calls us to life, to come out of the tomb today, and is the one ultimately who will call us home to you. You have the power over death. We thank you for inviting us into this ministry of unbinding and freeing as well. Lord, give us this gift of life. Help us to know the who that is the resurrection and the life. In your son's name. Amen.